welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back to the show. First time listeners, always try to extend a warm welcome to you guys. Uh, obviously, my regular listeners, I'm so grateful for your continued support, as is Counterpunch. I think that I, I know I always say it, and uh, I always say that I always say it, but Counterpunch, I think, really is important these days. There's so many things going on, and look, I was just, uh, you know, I was just scrolling through my my phone and realized that uh, major earth-shattering developments just took place in Brazil with a judge ordering the release of Lula, who will now probably run uh, in the presidential campaign. And guess what? Not one major media site in the United States has even picked up the story. You wouldn't even know that this was happening if you were just looking at the corporate media headlines. But then there is places like Counterpunch, and I think that this is really the value of a Counterpunch, that you're going to get the critical analysis from a left, progressive, socialist, communist, anarchist, whatever type of perspective you want, you'll find it at Counterpunch, and really, it's kind of our safe haven, our safe space, as it were. So, if you do value that, as I do, please consider becoming a subscriber to the magazine. It's a great way to support Counterpunch and get something out of it. I love getting the magazine in the mail. I love flipping through it over the course of a month or two, and uh, oftentimes returning to it and giving it out to people when they come to my house. I always really enjoy that as well. You can also just make a donation through PayPal. That's appreciated too. So uh, with that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to welcome Stan Malinowitz to the program. Uh, Stan teaches in political economy at the Universidad Nacional in Bogota, Colombia. He is here today to talk about the situation in Colombia, something that uh, doesn't get nearly enough attention, but really is uh, quite important important not only for uh, South America, but really all of Latin America. So uh, with that said, Stan Malinowitz, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much, Eric. To be here. Thank you for coming on and, uh, you know, for giving us very important analysis of a very important country in Latin America. And you wouldn't know it if you were, uh, you know, just following the regular corporate media headlines. But Colombia recently had a major election. And we've talked on this show about elections in other parts of Latin America, but Colombia kind of got short shrift. But I think it was pretty significant what's recently happened there. So, uh, Stan, can we just begin with a, with uh, an overview of the election? Who were the key players and how did it play out? Okay, well, in Colombia, uh, the system here for presidential elections, uh, in the first round, if nobody has a, you know, above 50% majority, they go to a second round three weeks later. So in the first round, there were five major candidates and the two that made it to the second round, uh, were uh, first the candidate of the far right, um, very much associated with former President Alvaro Uribe, and the candidate of the far, the farthest left candidate, Gustavo Petro. And the other three, um, uh, usually identified as the center, whatever that actually means, and they're all pretty much part of the neoliberal consensus. Um, so pretty much on the right in what's a very conservative country. Um, so the big surprise was really how well Petro did, the leftist candidate. Um, though in the second round, uh, he lost to Ivan Duque, the, the far right candidate. Um, by uh, the result was 54% to 42%. But the 42% and the 8 million voters that represented uh, was by far a record for a leftist candidate. So the 
the good news is that um, the left seems to be on the rise and Petra really mobilized a lot of social forces which have always been very hard to unite in Colombia. But the bad news is Uribismo is coming back to Colombia. Well, and and I think that's probably an important point to clarify for listeners, particularly those who don't have all the background on Colombia, that Uribe, the former president, that he is not simply uh, currently a sitting senator and the former president, but that he is in many ways, uh, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, the, the godfather of the Colombian right wing and of the Colombian ruling elites. He has longstanding ties to the United States, both Republican and Democrat. Democrat administrations. He has long since been known as a drug trafficker, human trafficking, weapons trafficking, all kinds of things, and that he is in many ways at the center of a lot of the criminality on the right. And now, and my question to you is, is the new is the new candidate essentially a sock puppet of Uribe? Is he being, is Uribe the one pulling the strings behind Duque? Well, that's certainly the, uh, the perception that people have. Uh, keep in mind, though, Eight years ago, um, uh, Santos, Juan Manuel Santos, the current president, was elected as Uribe's man. He was his defense minister, his loyal minister, and uh, very quickly they broke, uh, largely over the peace process that um, that Santos introduced with the with the FARC guerrillas. Um, so he didn't end up being the puppet that people expected. Now, one would assume Uribe was being a little more careful this time. Duque is uh, very young for a presidential candidate, 41 years old, with very limited experience, um, and uh, handpicked by Uribe. So uh, people are pretty much expecting Uribe to be pulling the strings. Um, we'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see whether Duque is going to go along with that or try to be more independent, but there's certainly no signs... Um, that he has any plans different uh, from what Uribe represents, uh, which includes, in, in, in terms of you know, economic and social policy, it really there's really not much difference between um, Duque or Uribe and, and Santos. It's extreme neoliberalism. Um, he's going to add some rougher edges or some extremes, but that's just the general tendency anyway. Um, the uh, the big divide is uh, in terms of the peace agreements. To what extent will they be implicate? Will they be implemented? And uh, to what extent will will they continue or not? The peace uh, peace talks with the ELN, the second largest guerrilla group. Indeed, and and it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Duque was essentially promising throughout the campaign that uh, to do something along the lines of what Trump did with the Iran deal and uh, other agreements, basically saying, uh, well, we're not going to break the agreements, but we're going to drastically change them, and you don't have any choice but to accept that. And uh, so the question is, A, do the agreements that were signed, do they have any legal standing in a scenario in which the government tries to unilaterally pull out of them? And then B, what happens to those who are trying to become reintegrated into the mainstream of Colombian life, those who spent decades fighting uh, the guerrilla war? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question right now. At the beginning, Duque was talking about uh, eliminating the agreements, but they do have legal standing. So by the end of his campaign, he was saying, well, I'm not going to tear up the agreements, the agreements stand, but I'm going to modify them. 
Uh, but of course, if you modify agreements unilaterally, they're not agreements anymore. The word agreement applies that two parties agree to it. Um, and uh, so he certainly, what he's likely to do is not eliminate the agreements as a, a legal agreement, uh, but simply, simply not implement them and make his own changes and probably get away with it since uh, he will have majority support between his party and other coalition parties. Uh, he'll have majority support in Congress. He'll have a lot of support in the high courts. Uh, he has a lot of support in the media. Um, the you know the media, which is corporate media run by the big business groups, uh, he has support from the United. He'll have support from the United States. Um, so it's likely he can do whatever he wants with them without actually legally eliminating them. The big uh, uh, the big differences uh, between um, what's in the agreements and what he wants to do. Um, one has to do with the the FARC were guaranteed ten seats in Congress. Five in the Senate and five in the House of Representatives for uh, for the first ten years, and he wants to eliminate that. Um, and maybe the biggest um, the biggest change the agreements created an institution um, called the uh, the special um, jurisdiction for peace, which means that actors in the uh, in the long war, and we're talking about more than half a century of guerrilla war. Um, the actors will, instead of being tried in regular courts, according to the regular criteria, will be tried in this uh, special jurisdiction. The um, penalties, except for crimes of, um, you know, what, what's classified as crimes, crimes against humanity, um, uh, will have a maximum of an eight-year sentence. And what Duque uh, is going to do, and apparently get away with it, certainly the Congress is going to support him, is to have that only apply to the guerrillas, not to members of the military, politicians, or businessmen, all of whom have been very implicated in major crimes during the war, and to create a special separate jurisdiction for them, uh, where likely there'll be a great deal of impunity. And certainly the uh, many people in the political class, and especially in uh, Uribe's groups, um, don't want too much truth coming out. Partly, it's it's modeled partly on the uh, South African truth commissions, where the idea is, well, you don't, you know, give the full punishment that some of the crimes may deserve, but the truth will come out. You know, as long as you tell the truth, um, we can start to put the past behind us. And the Uribe faction, not Duque personally, but uh, much of the Uribe faction and other uh, parties who've been in power. Um, want very much for a lot of the truth not to come out, you know, because, you know, as you mentioned before, not just Uribe, but, but his whole movement, uh, very implicated in all kinds of crimes, uh, um, paramilitary crimes, drug trafficking, you know, among others. Um, so rather than eliminating the accords, he's, he's just going to change them in the process of uh, implementing them and uh, really take the teeth off of them. But and and then you asked about you know well what about the guerrillas? They're kind of stuck. They've said well we're not going back to arms no matter what. Um, and they can't really you know they're not in any position um, to take back arms. They've pretty much been uh, been betrayed, <laughs> fooled and betrayed right because they made an agreement 
Uh, even Santos, who made the agreements, you know, the implementation has been very slow and um, and um, and minimal um, of some of the things that he's promised for the transition to um, to um, civilian life. And uh, he just recently accused uh, they accused one of the leaders of drug trafficking. Is actually the United States, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, uh, asked them to extradite one of the leaders. Um, and Santos said yes, and Duque said absolutely, we should, um, you know, for drug trafficking after the agreements were signed, and there were very dubious proofs. And um, the guerrillas are kind of stuck. They have no power to uh, demand, you know, they, they pretty much... I think assume that if the if the government actually formally signs agreements, they'll hold up their end, and it doesn't seem to be happening, and much less so under Duque. Sadly, that was all too expected, and unfortunately, it seems to have played out the way that uh, some of us, maybe more cynical observers, were were uh, expecting it to. Now, yes. the question I have has to has to do with um, another aspect of the violence in Colombia, and that is reports now coming in in the post-election period of targeted assassinations of leftists, and in particular, targeted assassinations of left political leaders and political. Uh, campaigners, in particular, uh, recently, one of the central organizers of the uh, Petro campaign uh, was recently murdered. Uh, this is, I think, a very, very dangerous precedent. We've seen this in Venezuela. We've seen it in Honduras. We continue to see it, actually, in those countries. And this seems to be happening in Colombia. So what can you tell us about the targeted assassinations of left political leaders and of leftist activists? And uh, A, you I mean, is there an outcry at all in Colombia itself? Is it getting coverage? And then B, I mean, gosh, what does this tell us about the incoming administration? I mean, are they, you know, clearing the way, as it were, for Duque to come in? Well, uh, what's been happening in the last few weeks is, is very worrisome, more than the last few weeks. And of course, Colombia has a very, very long history of political violence, going back to the independence and, you know, and before for... Uh, you know, for um, 200 years, but, um, but um, you know, in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, it went through some period of tremendous political violence, you know, about the guerrillas, the, the rise of the paramilitaries, uh, military violence also against civilian populations, murders of presidential candidates and major figures. And then over time, by the late 90s, in the 2000s, uh, the violence was more local, provincial. Uh, it ceased to be a big issue in the media, and therefore in you know popular perceptions, it never went away. Uh, but it was less the um, famous, visible, you know, big political figures, and it was more local leaders, leaders of social movements. Um, so that never went away. But what's been happening recently this year? Um, not just this year, uh, since the peace agreements were signed, there's been over 300 murders of social movement leaders. Um, this is not happening in the big cities. The big cities, actually, crime and violence have somewhat gone down. Uh, but uh, social movement leaders of all types, indigenous and Afro-Colombian groups, labor groups, peasant groups, environmental groups, and human rights groups, all, you know, all sorts of social movement leaders, um, there's been a rash of, of uh, killings and it's picked up. 
like I said, over 300, close to 400 since the agreements were signed in 2016. And in the last few weeks, there's just been a big rise. You know, it had been at a rate of, you know, about one or two a week, which is pretty tremendous to begin with. Uh, but there's just been a rash of killings in, um, in the last few weeks. And uh, it is actually, usually it doesn't get much media attention. I usually find out about these things through social networks, you know, leftist groups and social networks. Um, but it's getting, it's gotten to the point where it is in the news um, and people are getting concerned. And uh, just the other day, uh, two days ago, there were big um, uh, mobilizations in the main plazas and cities all over the country. And also in cities in other countries uh, around the Colombian embassies, uh, protesting uh, and trying to keep the visibility. Duque, you know, is obviously has to come out against it, you know, that it's a bad thing. Uh, it's not clear what he's going to do about it. One of those was Ana, Ana Maria Cortez, uh, who was the head of Petro's campaign locally in a, in a part of Antioquia, which is Uribe's department. Department here is like a state or a province. Um, and that was just a few days ago. Uh, and uh, some people associated with Duque came out and said that the way Uribe always used to say, whoever was gotten killed, well, they were connected to the guerrilla. Now it's they're connected to drug traffic. Absolutely no evidence of that. Um, uh, it's not clear if it was because she was leading Petro's campaign or uh, other activities as a social movement leader, um, but all kinds of social movements. And, um, you know, it's clearly paramilitary groups. It's not clear exactly which ones are involved, exactly what the connections are. Here in Colombia, there's long been connections between paramilitary groups and drug traffickers, politicians, businessmen. Landowners, you know, the, the, the uh, structure of power is somewhat complex in Colombia. You know, when we talk about the elites, they're all different groups. But um, since the at least the uh, 1980s and 90s, uh, they've all been very much, you know, connected to ev everybody, you know, and from the different elites uh, are connected in some ways with paramilitary groups and the paramilitary groups sometimes they're fused with drug, drug trafficking groups, sometimes they're different but related. Um, and the increase is very concerning. Not, nobody's saying Duque is ordering this or Uribe is ordering this, but, um, but under Uribe, the paramilitaries uh, were much freer to act. You know, there were clear links between uh, Uribe and a lot of his people uh, and paramilitary groups. Uribe himself, when he was governor of Antioquia in the 90s, uh, played a role in forming paramilitary groups, and illegally, because he formed um, these groups called, the, he called them the Convivir, uh, which were um, these basically vigilante groups. And he said, because the uh, state was not effective in fighting the guerrillas, we're going to form civilian groups that are going to help and denounce, you know, crime, guerrilla crimes. And and uh, these very quickly turned into paramilitary groups and went beyond the legal part. Other paramilitary groups grew out of drug trafficking, others through relations with the military. Others began as private armies of landowners um, in the more you know remote regions where the state doesn't uh, have a big presence. Uh, so. 
it's not so much um, that Duque and Uribe are going to are ordering paramilitary killings, as far as I know. Um, they're not being accused as that of that as sort of empowering and uh, and enabling that, and uh, that it's a new era where you can get away with that more. And uh, of having a hard line, you know, before everybody on the left was, you know, repression was justified by accusing everybody of being related to the guerrillas. Um, it's harder to do that at this point. Uh, so now it's just crass, you know, killing. Uh, very, very, very worrisome. And again, I, I can't say where this is going once Duque takes office, but it's, um, uh, there, there's certainly a lot to worry about the tendency. Indeed. And we've seen this play out throughout the region, obviously, you know, in Honduras with Berta Cáceres and others. We saw it recently in Brazil with Marielle Franco and her assassination and the social movement, social uproar around that. Um, and in Colombia, as you as you mentioned there in your comments, it's not just political uh, activists, but it's also uh, those working with the Afro-Colombian community, the indigenous communities, environmental activists and others who have been targeted union, uh, trade unionists, and many, many others. So the question, the question then becomes, okay, we don't necessarily know who's, you know, directly ordering this, but at a broader level, there, there has to be, you know, this, this tendency to make a connection between a rise in these killings and the, you know, the incoming administration, whether the administration has anything to do with it or not, there has to be this, at least, you know, connection that people are making in their minds and i wonder is there a political impact that it could have well yes and you know i i don't want to put too much emphasis on on the incoming administration here because this has been going on and there's there's really a parallel i think to the united states with sort of business as usual under the usual democrats and republicans especially the democrats and then Trump comes in, and yes, Trump is more extreme, and many things have gotten worse. But there's also a lot of continuity, but people are more aware of things with Trump, you know. And uh, in the Santos years, you know, Santos is the man of peace who finally negotiated peace with the FARC, and he actually won a Nobel Prize um, uh, after being a man of war as Minister of Defense. Um, so... The, um, a lot of this has been going on all the time. I'm not sure how much is actually has to do with the new administration and how much, you know, I will always wonder what would have happened if Petro had won. You know, the, there are some sometimes there appeared the slimmest chance that it was possible and we could fantasize. And, you know, one possibility is that paramilitarism would have been worse than ever, you know, because uh, uh, they would have risen up, you know, in in uh, in opposition. To uh, any you know small even the smallest reform moves he was going to make, uh, so I don't I don't think it depends that much on who exactly is the president. Um, although they'll probably be uh, more empowered under Duque, there is a certain tendency among a lot of the elites, particularly the urban like the Bogota elites, um, to sort of want to wash their hands of the paramilitaries, and uh, you know the again the. the the structure of power is very complex. There's all different groups among the elites, and they make alliances, but they also have their conflicts. And I think we can see the election of Uribe in 2002, who was an outsider. He wasn't one of the traditional political elites. 
You know, it was very common that a new president of Colombia would have a familiar last name, you know, because he was the grandson or great grandson of a former president. And I think there were two President Santos before before the current the current one. Um, Uribe was from the landowning elites. Uh, he was, you know, cattle rancher. Um, uh, he and um, the Bogota elite supported him. Because he was the one who was going to supposedly get rid of the guerrillas, though he was very effective in weakening them. Um, and it was sort of this alliance between landowning elites and the sort of modern, you know, bourgeoisie, mostly centered in, in Bogota, of which Santos is a very good representative. He's from one of the real elite families, media empire, as well as, you know, traditional political elites. Um, and... Um, sort of letting loose Uribe and his whole, you know, paramilitary structure that he had uh, was a tactic. And now that, you know, the uh, guerrilla is less of a force, um, the land has been cleared, not just of guerrillas, but largely of peasants. You know, Colombia's got an absurdly unequal distribution of land, as well as you know, income and wealth in general. But to understand the conflicts, it's got such an unequal distribution of land um, the tremendous displacement, right? The, the numbers on displaced people during, you know, from the conflict go from five to seven million, the largest of, in the world until I think recently Syria passed it. But um, um, uh, at this point now, there's a sort of dispute: what's going to happen with the land, and what, you know, which way is Colombia going to go? And uh, for some of the elites, you know, Uribe and the paramilitarism are somewhat of an embarrassment. And uh, if you actually look at, um, you know, who's taking over the land that's been abandoned, uh, partly it's the traditional um, landowners, you know, cattle, cattle ranchers and other traditional sectors. And then partly it's the uh, urban elites um, are moving into the rural settings also, but with somewhat of a different logic in the sense that, you know, with the traditional um, landowners, the property rights were never that formal. It was more sort of de facto and it was, you know, sort of local power structures. And now the big um, economic conglomerates that dominate the economy, once they were largely an industry in the period of industrialization, now they're largely the parliament industry, they're in finance, they're in media, they're in everything. And they're also buying up land, partly for speculation, but also partly for these mega projects and they want formal property rights. You know, they like formal property rights. That helps them speculate. That helps them, you know, um, with their projects. The projects, some of them are biofuels. Um, the African palm uh, is a big one for palm oil, which is turned into biofuels and corn for biofuels. Uh, big projects that require big extensions of land. Um, uh, these people, I think, uh, benefited from Uribe, but would like to wash their hands of him and, uh, and of paramilitarism. And even Uribe turned against some of his paramilitary allies uh, at the end of his presidency. Uh, he started to extradite uh, paramilitary, about 14 paramilitary leaders, which had been unthinkable earlier. And I think largely it was to shut them up. <laughs> you know, So uh, uh, once the time came for the truth to come out, they weren't very interested in that, very effectively. Um, so in that sense, um, 
Duque himself is not, you know, certainly hasn't been accused of having any of those ties. He's very tied to Uribe, of course. Um, Duque himself is, uh, you know, very educated. He's young. He's only 41 years old. Uh, he worked, his work experience was largely with the Inter-American Development Bank in Washington, uh, and then one term as a senator, where he was very, you know, very much allied with, you know, Uribe, I think, invited him to run for the Senate. Uh, so he's very much Uribe's man, but he's, you know, he doesn't have that whole history behind him. Uh, Santos was Uribe's defense minister when the paramilitaries ran wild and, you know, and he allowed it. Uh, again, he was not directly personally tied, but he certainly enabled it. Uh, and many of the atrocities that were committed by the military, uh, as well as the paramilitaries, happened under Uribe and Santos as defense minister and um, strong defender always of the institution, no matter what kind of scandal would come out. Uh, so again, uh, with Duque, you expect harder edges both on repression and on neoliberalism, but it's harder edges to the same basic logic um, that, that the uh, Colombian elites in power have, um, have been using. I think that makes perfect sense. Now, um, we're running short on time before we go to the break, but I want to I just give you an opportunity to explain for listeners what neoliberalism in Colombia looks like, because, um, you know, there's a number of countries uh, in Latin America that you would probably think of before you think of Colombia when you hear the word neoliberalism. Uh, you know, obviously the various experiments and shock therapy and all the rest of that in Chile and many other countries in Latin America, but Colombia has had kind of a, a unique experience with what we would call neoliberalism, and it does certainly have an impact on the politics and what's going on there today. So I know it's a broad question. I'm asking you to kind of condense it into a couple minutes here, but uh, what does um, the inequalities and the hardships brought about by neoliberalism, what does that mean for the future now that there's a hard right uh, government in power? I mean, obviously, we would expect inequality to deepen. We would expect a lot of these things to get worse, but can you just paint a picture for us? What does neoliberalism in Colombia look like, and what's it going to look like with the Duque administration? Okay, first, I, I don't want to attribute, attribute inequality in Colombia to neoliberalism. Inequality in Colombia has been for, throughout its history. It's been one of the most unequal countries. Latin America is the most unequal region of the world, and Colombia has always been one of the most unequal countries uh, in uh, the last couple of decades, it's become, uh, it's gone up the list of, you know, most, some years it's the most unequal country in the region. This past year, I think it's the second most unequal to Hondur after Honduras. Uh, but the extreme inequality comes from its entire history. It's Colombia uh, is a country that, uh, you know, at its independence, it was extremely unequal. You know, and when we talk about inequality, we're talking about income inequality, wealth inequality and land inequality and the land inequality has been you know so important to understand not just this conflict but the conflicts throughout its history um and one difference between colombia and other countries colombia never had even some of the liberal reforms that other countries had um to soften a little bit you know the inequality um never had a serious land reform so it's always been very unequal uh, in terms of economic policies, then in the 
you know, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, um, up through the 70s in Latin America, there were all these industrialization programs with somewhat of a wealth of a welfare state. It varied a lot between countries um, with a welfare state trying to urbanize and create industry. And uh, Colombia was part of that, but in a very limited fashion. It didn't include, you know, the higher wages that some countries tried to uh, promote so that people could buy <laughs> the domestic product, um, products. It remained very unequal. And it was actually somewhat late coming to full-scale neoliberalism. Uh, Colombia didn't pass through a, a debt crisis in the 1980s like the rest of Latin America did. Probably it had a lot to do with all the dollars coming in from the drug trade then, as well as a coffee boom in, in the uh, 70s and, and 80s. Uh, so the, the transition to, to full-scale neoliberalism was more gradual, uh, pretty much identified with the, at the beginning of the 1990s, uh, a series of reforms um, associated with neoliberalism. And it's, it's, you know, what we generally associate with neoliberalism, policies that are very unfavorable to workers, very, very favorable to capital, uh, include a lot of privatizations, include uh, dismantling labor protections, um, letting the minimum wage go down, um, uh, and and uh, and the economic openings, free trade, and especially free um, foreign, you know, opening up to foreign investment and giving you know the good terms to foreign investment. Uh, so in that sense, Colombia came a bit late to it, to as you know, full scale neoliberalism. Um, but it's at this point. Um, probably more neoliberal than most countries. Of course, there's a new wave of right-wing governments in, in some Latin American countries like Argentina and, and Brazil. Um, uh, so it's hard to say who's more neoliberal, who's less. All of them, even with the reformist governments, as they had in Brazil and Argentina, Uruguay and some others, um, you know, they were sort of neoliberalism with some social services and, you know, again, softening um, some of the effects that wasn't a major structural change. But Colombia at this point uh, is farther right. And again, we talk about the Uribe and Duque as the far right. In economic terms, Santos is the far right. The Liberal Party is pretty much the far right. Um, the whole mainstream you know, of, of uh, politics and political parties, they're very neoliberal, some of them slightly reformist, um, some of them less so. Um, but Colombia is, in that sense, very extreme. It's, like I said, the second most unequal country in Latin America, and I think the seventh in, um, in the world. It's been one of the more repressive countries, with uh, whether you know, openly repressive or uh, through illegal paramilitaries of opposition, which also helps to explain how they manage to keep, uh, keep these extremes. And the elites of Colombia, the different elites, you know, the res more respectable urban elites and uh, uh, capitalist elites and the landowners and, uh, you know, um, uh, the sort of import-export merchant elites and the political elites. Um, they've just been more intransigent about any sort of reforms and concessions. Uh, and they've managed to get away with it through yeah, a mixture of selective repression. Uh, and at this point, it's very selective. You don't feel it really in the cities as you did in, in, in other periods. Um, 
selective repression when they when they kill some of the best of the social leaders that you know they stay dead they don't come back and uh and so that has some very long-term effects as well as the fear that it instills and also ideological control the media are controlled by the big business groups sometimes in association with foreign business groups some from venezuela some from spain um they very much um control the airwaves and the newspapers uh, what most people see, um, and, you know, pr create the sense that there's no uh, alternative. And more recently, and maybe we can get into this later if you'd like, um, um, what Duque re repeated endlessly, uh, and even some of the people on the not quite so far right, uh, we don't want Colombia to become another Venezuela. And of course, you know, you could... Uh, um, you know, you could deconstruct that a lot. You can talk about why the two countries are so different, but you know, but a, a slogan is much more effective than analysis with the, you know, the way the media works. And so people were repeating endlessly. You know, people, uh, you'd ask people, why are you voting for Duque? People who, you know, kind of like with Trump, well, some Trump voters, you know, the the ones who were clearly going to be hurt by his policies. Well, we don't want to be another Venezuela. We don't want to be another Venezuela. So. You know, creating this idea that there's really no alternative, uh, and this is the ultimate. Yeah, I mean that in order. That seems to that seems to be that seems to be the mantra in every election in the region in the last few years, and certainly the scare tactics are uh, well quite effective actually. And we're going to talk a little bit about that on the other side of the break. So I want to I want to when we return, I want to talk about what recently happened in Mexico and compare that to what's happened in Colombia. How are they similar? How are they different? And we're also going to talk more about uh, some of the other regional dynamics and where Colombia fits into that. And of course the 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 elephant in the room the elephant that's always in the room when it comes to latin america the yankee empire up north yeah. and what the united states is doing and what the united states is uh looking for in the region so much more to talk about with stan malinowitz you're listening to counterpunch radio we will be right back at your front door How you gonna come With your hands on your head Or on the trigger of your gun When the law break in How you gonna go Shot down on the pavement Or waiting on death you can crush us, you can bruise us, but you have to answer to the gas 
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Stan Malinowitz. I highly recommend uh, his work. He's a contributor to Counterpunch. His recent article on the elections in Colombia, very uh, informative, very good, quick read. I recommend that, and I recommend that you follow his work generally. Now, Stan, before the break, we were kind of uh, talking a little bit about neoliberalism and kind of began to touch on some regional, some regional issues and some regional dynamics, and I think one obvious question in looking at what's happened uh, with regard to these recent elections in Colombia is comparing them to the monumental elections in Mexico, where in Colombia you had the far-right candidate, a candidate very much tied to the previous uh, governments, winning uh, successfully by, by quite a large margin. And on the other hand, in Mexico, we had AMLO uh, Obrador, who just recently won his election from the left in a landslide. So tell us, if you could, your analysis of, um, you know, comparing these two elections, because many of the same issues in play in Mexico were in play in Colombia. Many of the same problems exist in those two countries, institutional problems, uh, corruption problems, violence, drugs, all of these issues are very much present in both so why the extreme difference yeah well it's extreme in one way obviously in terms of who won and who lost um uh there are some similarities like i said in colombia uh petro received the record number of votes the left had never received more than 20 percent in a presidential election nor you know received a a a lot of votes for you know they've always had a a small minority of people in congress um, so it was really a record vote for the left in both countries. Um, I mean, there are differences. I mean, for one in Colombia, a lot of the problems, people are just so accustomed to them, you know, um, you know, it's, it's hard to generate a real scandal here, you know, be, um, you know, with the, when, uh, people were getting, like social movement leaders were getting killed, you know, it wasn't a bigger story than Colombia in the world cup. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, it didn't distract people from that. What new in the 90s and early 2000s in Mexico, they were talking about the Colombianization of Mexico. Uh, it was something newer there. And um, I think pe- things have reached such a bad point. And also the traditional political class in Mexico, I think people have gotten really fed up with. Uh, in Colombia, Uribe himself is very popular. His... Uh, um, the figures, you know, for his popularity, the favorability figures have gone down, but it's still over 50 percent. Uh, he's this real populist leader. He's this firebrand. Um, and it, throughout all the many, many scandals, some of them really serious of his presidency, uh, his popularity remained very high. So he's got that power to mobilize. And maybe the ruling classes have, have uh, uh, maintained a little more. Uh, in Colombia, more of an ability to um, to manipulate public opinion and 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 the sense of what's possible, um, and and the role of Venezuela as as a model that people are afraid of here probably plays plays a role. But what's really notable here is not so much you know the victory of Duque was largely expected, 
Um, and if not Duque, another, you know, right wing, maybe center right candidate. But the real phenomenon was uh, not just how many votes Petro received, but how he was able to, in a country with a very fragmented left, um, he really didn't appeal to the, the leftist party so much as to social movements. And he went around the country and uh, big mobilizations and plazas around the country. So there really is um, something in common there. At the same time, uh, what is the left? You know, we bandy around these terms, right, center, and left. Earlier I said, you know, the people identified on the center look pretty right-wing to me. <laughs> you know, as neoliberals um, um, uh, pretty much in the right-wing consensus. Uh, Petro and AMLO um, are both old-time leftists who've... Uh, modified their discourse quite a bit. Uh, AMLO probably more than Petro. Petro was an ex-guerrilla from the M19 who demobilized at the end of the 80s with a peace agreement. Um, and Petro has been a, a congressman and senator and mayor of Bogota. And uh, in electoral politics, you know, there's always the dilemma on the left. How true do you stay to what you really believe and how much do you modify it? Uh, in order to get taken seriously, in order to you know have a chance of winning, Petro is an old radical, but his program was very much reformist. Uh, I think probably by the you know, by the end, Amlo was more reformist. You know, Amlo had made more concessions. It remains to be seen. It's very exciting that he finally won, uh, but he also made a lot of agreements with big capital. You know, no expropriations, not um, you know a lot of uh, radical measures that he's agreed not to do. Petro had too, would have been very interesting to see, you know, him try, see how far he could have gotten. Uh, but the left was, even though Petro was identified in the media as the far left, uh, it was really a liberal reformist program, which in the Colombian context feels fairly radical. Uh, but um, he was talking about uh, less dependence on the extractive industries, oil and mining dominate the economy and dominate foreign investment, he was saying, well, no, we need a less, less rentist economy, a more productive economy. Uh, transition to that, he was talking about social programs, he was talking about free access to health, uh, health services. We have a health system very similar to the U.S., you know, based on private um, uh, insurers. Um, free access to higher education for many more people. And fixing up, there's free public education, but anybody who couldn't afford private education does. So he wanted to, you know, higher quality, reforming the pension system, land reform. Uh, but he had made a bunch of promises in order to get certain support from the so-called center. Um, you know, he wasn't going to expropriate um, land or 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 businesses, uh, any um, any expropriations. Um, he, wa he was going to do some business, you know, maintain some business-friendly policies. And of course, you know, a leftist analysis, um, you know, without getting into details, but the basic idea is you can't solve the problems of poverty without touching wealth, you know, without the, 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 the wealth and poverty are two sides of a dialectic. And uh, uh, so, and, and that when you call it liberal and reformist, the basic idea is do what you can to help poor people, to help peasants, you know, to help the downtrodden, uh, but without uh, really touching very much the people at the top, um, which is why I think it's not really 
radical reform. He's talking about a progressive tax reform. We have a very regressive tax system. Santos passed a more regressive tax reform. Duque has promised an even more regressive tax reform. So in that sense, it would have touched rich people in terms of a somewhat more progressive tax structure. Uh, but it wasn't really a radical program. And AMLO, I think, even less so. Uh, it, but, you know, it, the, in the context of, you know, neoliberalism being so hegemonic that it just it's it that it feels natural after after a while. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. But but no, I, I'm sorry. I was just trying to say, though, that um, there's there's plenty of precedent for that in Latin America. I mean, Petro is essentially espousing similar, if not identical, uh, policy prescriptions to what Lula did in Brazil in 2004, and Dilma carried on uh, uh, during her tenure until she was ousted in a constitutional coup by the right. I mean, these were not these were not socialist firebrands. These were not you know the reincarnation of Che Guevara. These are social democrats who were more or less working within the confines of a uh, progressive, I guess you could say, progressive uh, version of capitalism and, uh, you know, uplifting the poor to the extent that they could and working with the social movements to the extent that they could, but not, certainly not going fully socialist in the way of, say, the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela did. But, you know, obviously... Um, you know, we have many parallels to this, whether you want to look at a Bernie Sanders and a Jeremy Corbyn type uh, candidacies or whether you want to look at Obrador, you know, AMLO in Mexico or a number of other candidates. So it does seem to me that there is a trend here and Petro was falling very much within this sort of pink tide uh, narrative, I guess you could yes, say. Yes, he was. And, you know, Petro's an interesting person. He had a much he has much more of an environmental consciousness. He is an environmentalist. Um he uh, was very critical of, you know, the the uh, structure of, you know, dependence in Latin America on exports of primary goods, whether it's agricultural or, um, you know, as in Colombia or Venezuela, extractive industries, oil and mining, oil, gas and mining, and um, both the social economic effects of that as well as the environmental effects. And that he was very critical of Maduro and, and Chavez in Venezuela. And he's saying, well, you know, they, um, you know, they had some good social programs, but uh, they didn't do anything to change the structure of dependence on oil. And he did, and he tried to really distance himself from Venezuela on those terms. Um, and with all these, you know, reformist governments, I mean, they're they're obviously, you know, very preferable. You know, first, if you can have, you know, soften the effects of neoliberalism, well. The, the the hard effects are so bad that, you know, of course you prefer that, you know, sort of like Sanders in the U.S. And I know some of the listeners are fervent supporters of Sanders. And I, I would much prefer to see Sanders president to either Trump or Clinton or, or any mainstream Democrat. Um, but it's not socialism, you know, whether you use the word or not. Uh, it's reformist capitalism. It's not clear at this point how far you could actually get with that without provoking a major economic crisis. Um, you know, so that there's the enormous pressure to make concessions to capital. And if you don't, capital has a lot of power, probably more power than a president. Um, and in the current conditions, where world economic conditions, where there's probably a major crisis brewing, uh, somewhat like the 2008 crisis, because the conditions are still there in place. Um, you wonder, well, what is a sort of center-left government going to do if that crisis is? It might come quicker if we have more, more leftist governments. 
because you know capital has its way of reacting and um yeah uh, you know, I, we can only speculate on that. I certainly rather have Sanders and Petro and Amlo in place. You know, somebody with good intentions, at least, than uh, uh, than the right wing. Um, but you know, socialism is not on the agenda, uh, and the idea, even of you know, and, and on the one hand, uh, you know, I, I I tend to be somewhat critical of you know how reformist they are. On the other. You know, well, the more socialist they are, the farther they would be from the halls of power and from any chance of taking over. Uh, it's it's a very difficult situation right now. Sure, absolutely. And that's certainly true in a number of places. Now, um, with the time we have remaining, though, I do want to focus on uh, some of the foreign policy issues and how Colombia fits into a broader uh, yeah, strategic uh, chessboard that the United States is playing on here. And one aspect of this that I think uh, is woefully underreported is Colombia essentially, although I guess it's not 100%, you know, uh, official, really, but essentially becoming a member uh, of NATO or an observer of NATO uh, in Latin America, which is a first. It, it changes the nature of NATO, at least what it was theoretically supposed to be. But it also changes, I think, in some ways, the relationship between the United States and Colombia. I mean, it's always been militarized, at least for the last few decades. The U.S. has shipped been billions of dollars via Pen Colombia into that country, funneled that money into the coffers of people like Uribe and others and uh, waging the drug war and all of the rest of that. But entry into NATO and observer status in NATO, I think, is a very serious escalation. So can you talk a little bit about uh, Colombia's entry into NATO? What does this mean regionally? Uh, what does it mean for Venezuela, potentially? And also, and I'm very curious, is it generating any controversy at all inside of the country? And if so, what impact is that having? Well, actually, there's been surprisingly little about it in the news in Colombia. You know, I've learned more about this from alternative media and social networks than from newspapers and uh, TV news. Um, so there hasn't been a huge controversy, but it's certainly important. Um, now, the actual... Um, link with NATO, it's, it's observer associate status. I'm not sure of the word, but uh, it's not a full member, but you know, it's a sort of a partial member. Um, uh, I don't know how much actually changes with that in terms of what its position was in the world, but Colombia is very strategic geopolitically. You know, if you look at a map, it's right smack in the center of Latin America. Colombian governments you know, liberals, conservatives, and now these new parties, they've always had very, very close relations with the United States. Um, Colombia has seven U.S. military bases. This is big news about 10 years ago when they expanded. And then, you know, like a lot here uh, just sort of disappears from the news and people forget about it. But there are seven major military, U.S. military bases in Colombia capable of reaching their, you know, the planes, the fighter planes, capable of reaching all over Latin America, I understand, even as far as um, uh, as parts of Africa. But, um, um, you know, the, the U.S. has military base, of course, all over the world and all over Latin America, but uh, Colombia is where it has the biggest presence in Latin America. Um, obviously, they don't want it to be an associate of NATO to help them defend North, the North Atlantic. <laughs> it's not going to get involved in disputes in Europe, right? Um, 
So, you know, it obviously has to do with the situation in South America. Um, we know recently some documents were uh, uncovered from the Southern Command of the U.S. Army. There is a contingency plan in place for military intervention in Venezuela in which Colombia would have a big role. Now, the, I say contingency plan because they say, first, we want to wait and see if it can implode. And they say very explicitly, you know, we support the opposition, the economic war, as Maduro calls it, is very real. You know, and, um, um, you know so we tighten the screws, sanctions, support for, you know, for opposition, the psychological warfare, all that. You know, we hope it implodes. Either the opposition will win an election or there'll be a military coup or popular uprising. Doesn't seem to be happening, as bad as the crisis is there. Um, if there were to be military intervention in Venezuela, um, Colombia would clearly have a big role in that. Apparently, Panama and Argentina would also have roles in some other countries. But And Colombia is the firmest ally of the United States. And that, again, it doesn't change either with Colombian governments or with changes in U.S. governments. Uh, Duque... Um, has uh, just returned from the United States. I'm not sure if he's returned yet, but uh, he's been in the United States. He's met with Mike Pence, with Pompeo, with John Bolton. Um, um, very apparently, very friendly meetings. And uh, um, you know, they they've strength. You know, trying to st not so much strengthen ties as maintain the strong ties that they've always had. Uh, Santos has also. Uh, been talking uh, about Venezuela as a dictatorship and uh, the horrors of Venezuela. And, uh, you know, so again, it's not so much a change, I don't think. Uh, but both Santos and Duque would cooperate completely with the United States in the case of an intervention. Venezuela or elsewhere, but Venezuela is obviously the, uh, the strongest candidate. Uh, in Nicaragua, they'll probably wait and see what happens. You know, an intervention is... Military intervention is always the last recourse, but they, um, uh, but they might be getting to that point in Venezuela. Colombia would play a very important role, and the, the military bases there um, are very important. That might have been, Petro didn't really talk about that. That might have been a difference if he'd been elected. I don't know what would have been his attitude. But certainly with Duque, it just gets, um, the role in the region just gets reinforced. And, and yes, with Trump indeed. being um, such a loose cannon and, uh, you know, and sanctions against friendly countries and, you know, it's, uh, again, I, I, I would never make a prediction about what Trump is going to decide, uh, but it would seem likely that um, he's not going to turn against Colombia. Colombia still has a free trade agreement with the United States. Um, it's got a lot of trade preferences and... Uh, uh, it seems like for Colombia, as long as Colombia remains open to the military bases and military cooperation, uh, as well as open to foreign investment, and Colombia is very, very open to uh, foreign investment. Mining is the biggest, and mining and oil are the biggest areas, but all finance and other areas. As long as that's maintained, uh, it doesn't seem like the relationship with the United States is going to change, either because of Trump or because of Duque. Very interesting. Uh, so much more to discuss, but we're going to have to leave it there. We're just out of time. Um, thank you again for coming on the show. Listeners, I recommend Stan Malinitz Malinowitz's work. Please do uh, follow that on Counterpunch. You can uh, You can also, um, well, let's see. Was there any, is, are you on Twitter, by the way? I don't even know. I'm not are on you? Twitter. I'm on Facebook. 
Oh, on Facebook. All right, so then you can follow Stan on Facebook as well. Listeners, I, I highly recommend it. Colombia is a very important country for Latin America. It's a very important country, really, for the Western Hemisphere and something that we definitely need to be following. Stan, thank you for coming on the show, listeners. Thank you, as always, and for continuing to support this work. I really do appreciate it, and I will speak to you again. <laughs>